All right, here's how we're going to start tonight. We're going to start with a little game. So I need you to find somebody that you feel confident that you can win with. Okay? So two or three in a group together, and it's, it's going to be simple. You've got a 50% chance on each one, and we're playing a game called Big Fat Liar. Now that's not, in, that's not any of y'all necessarily. I will go ahead and inform you that some of these are going to be difficult to read just because of the font that is used in this game. I will read them for you so that you will know. You are going to need something to write on as a team because this is a test or game or quiz or whatever, all right? You need to come to a consensus. The answer will be either true or false, right? And so there's going to be something up there. And this, this slide says all of the following answers are true. Actually, they're all false. Well, some of them are true and some of them are false. So you've got to figure that out. All right, so here's example. Here's a sample. Humans are the only animals that cry tears or <laughs> need to. Humans are the only animals that cry tears. Now, here's what I'm going to ask you to do. You're just, this is a sample. We're going to go over it in a minute. You just write down true or false. You don't have to say it. Don't, you don't want to give other teams answers or hints or lead them astray, right? We're not, we're not trying to do that. And so this particular one is true. Humans are the only animals that cry tears. See, if you don't learn anything else tonight, look what you learned. Absolutely, right? So, all right, you got your teams together? Raise your hand if you got a team. I got some people not raising hands. Are y'all got teams, all right? Every team got a pen and something to write on or a pencil and something to write on? Okay. There are luxurious prizes for those that win. All right, here it is. Number one. Like I said, I know you can't, the print's really weird on it. I know you can't read it, so I'll read it. The tooth is the only part of the human body that can't repair itself. The tooth is the only part of the human body that can't repair itself. Write down your answer. We're not going to give you all the answers right now, so you've got to write down because you won't remember when you get back. All right. Number two. More people are killed annually by donkeys than die in air crashes. More people are killed annually by donkeys than in air crashes. Annually, more people are killed by donkeys than die in air crashes. Number three. The first one was, yeah, the first one that we gave an answer was the sample. Thigh bones are connected to the... No, thigh bones are stronger than concrete. Thigh bones are stronger than concrete. True or false? It's one the engineer ought to know, right? Either way. Number four. Two American presidents were fathers of future presidents. Two American presidents were fathers of future presidents. 
Y'all don't realize this is really a social experiment in how to resolve conflicts. (laughs) I'm watching. Number five. Wheaties. Y'all know what Wheaties are? Wheaties were invented by accident in a science lab by a health clinician. Wheaties were invented by accident in a science lab by a health clinician. Y'all just think about all the valuable information you're going to have when you leave here tonight. Miss Ann said y'all aren't going to remember them when you walk out, but that's... Number six, the most common name in the world is John. The most common name in the world is John. Number seven, a cow emits 160 pounds of methane gas in a year. A cow emits... 160 pounds of methane gas in a year. That's a lot of gas. No testimonials, please. Number eight. Our eyes, nose, and ears are the same size from birth. Our eyes, nose, and ears are the same size from birth. Y'all were looking at me like I made these up. I'm just, like, what are you trying to, I'm just. Our eyes, nose, and ears are the same size from birth. Number nine. Every day, more money is printed for Monopoly than the U.S. Treasury. Every day, more money is printed for Monopoly than the U.S. Treasury. Every day, more money is printed for Monopoly than the U.S. Treasury. This, these questions are before the electronic error of Monopoly. Not that that really matters. It's about the same now. And number ten. A duck's quack doesn't echo. A duck's quack doesn't echo. Try to say that three times fast. A duck's quack doesn't echo. A duck's quack, 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 quack doesn't echo. Oh, oh. All right, you got everything written down? All right. It's now time to see how you did. You got your red, you got your red pen out for grading now? All right, here's the first question. The tooth is the only part of the human body that can't repair itself. How many of you said true? How many of you said false? The answer is true. If you get a cut on your eye, it can repair. It takes a little while. Number two. More people are killed annually by donkeys than die in air crashes. How many said true? How many said false? True. There are lots of donkeys in lots of parts of the world, and they kick pretty hard. Number three. Thigh bones are... They do. 
Charlie is. <laughs> if you're riding one falling off a cliff, it's a bad day. Thigh bones are stronger than concrete. How many said true? How many said false? I saw some of you didn't raise your hand, so you didn't answer. True. Strongest bone in the body, right there. The femur. They can't, I'm not saying they can't. Number four. Two American presidents were fathers of future presidents. How many said true? How many said false? The true are? The two are? Bush and Adams. Who's your third? Now he remembers there weren't three. There you go. You were one of Roosevelt? Yeah, they, they weren't. That one father and son there. Next week's American History with Josh Harris. Number five. Wheaties were invented by accident in a science lab by a health clinician. True. That's, that's five in a row, right? Number six. The most common name in the world is John. How many of you put true? How many of you put false? It's false. It's Mohammed. In the world. That's what it said. Number seven. A cow emits 160 pounds of methane gas in a year. How many said true? False. True. What was that, Mr. Roberts? There you go. There you go. All right. Our eyes, nose, and ears are the same size from birth. How many said true? It's false. Our nose and ears never stop growing. Isn't that encouraging? <laughs> Some of you are... What? what? Pinocchio had something on there. But the, what you notice there is our eyes are the same size from birth. That's why everybody said, those babies have such big eyes. Because they're the same size they'll be when they're big. Number nine. Every day more money is printed from Monopoly than the U.S. Treasury. How many said true? False. True. And number ten. A duck's quack doesn't echo. True. All right, here we go. How many you got? Anybody get ten? Nine. Oh, we got a tie over there. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two. We had a two teams tie for the win, and so to get the luxurious prizes, we have to have a tiebreaker. So just for the two teams that tied, our, our nines back there, it is impossible to lead a cow downstairs. This question is not related in any way to the previous question about cows. Okay, y'all have your answer back there? What do, what do y'all have over here? True, what do y'all have? It's true. <laughs> That's not going down. I know, Steve, you're, a little, you're being an engineer. That's okay. All right. That was a lot of fun, wasn't it? Y'all ready to be done? Oh, we have other things to do, right?
What does that have to do with anything? Well, we're on the Sermon on the Mount. And here's where we have entered. We have entered into the place in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus is going to talk about what is true following and what is false following. What is actually looks like to follow and what doesn't look like. And he's going to give some examples. He's going to talk about the straight and the narrow versus the wide, broad way. He's going to talk about knowing things by their fruit. He's going to talk about um, people that think they're okay that aren't. And he's going to end by talking about the difference between building on rock and sand. And we have gotten to the end of the sermon. This is the application portion of the sermon. And what Jesus has done is he spent several chapters, several verses, laying out what it means to follow him in society, what it looks like to be one of his followers. And having done that, he comes to this practical application and outworking of it all. He reminds them at once that the kind of life they have to live is to be entirely different from the best and the most religious um, that was known at their time. He contrasted it with the teaching of the Pharisees and the scribes and the doctors of the law, and they were considered to be the best people, the most religious people, and yet he says that their righteousness of the people he's talking to here is to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. He begins to show them, giving detailed instruction how we are to do our almsgiving, how we're to pray, how we're to fast. Finally, he deals with the whole attitude towards life in the world and our attitude towards other people in judgment. And he's been laying down all those principles. And he says, in effect, there is what it means to live in the kingdom of God. That is the character of the kingdom which I am forming. That is the type of life I am giving to you. I want you to live it. I want you to manifest it. He's not only laid down principle, he's worked them out for us in details. Now, having done that, he pauses, as it were, and looks at his congregation, and he says to them, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about what I've said? The point of listening to the sermon isn't just to listen to the sermon. There's purpose in what I have said. What are you going to do about it? He comes with some words of exhortation and application. Look at Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 13. Verse 13 says, enter now. I think it actually said in the King James Version, enter ye through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate and difficult the road that leads to life and few find it. What we have in these first two verses that we're going to spend a little bit of time and then we're going to go on to the next about false teachers are some steps that we see that Jesus is asking the people to do. And the first thing he says is, the, you have a decision to make right now. And being a believer in Jesus Christ or Christianity as a whole is a decision-making religion. Throughout the New Testament, Jesus will walk up to people and He will see them sitting at their tax collecting station and He says to him, Follow me. 
he goes out, there's some guys fishing, and they hadn't caught anything all night. And he throws over to the side, and they pull it in. And when they pull it in, they look at him like, who are you? And he says, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. One of the things that I love about Jesus is that he is never bashful about calling for decision, about calling for commitment. The concept of enter, the, even that, that command, means that there has to be a decision that is made that we're going to do something with what we have just heard. Now, we have heard it over weeks and weeks. They had heard it over a couple of hours. And Jesus says, now with all of that that you've heard, there's so much in there. there it's taken us months to get through this sermon. But Jesus laid it all out in an afternoon. And then he says, now decide. Enter. Come in. It, 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 by saying that it's a straight or narrow, he, he is saying that it, it's something you have to seek out deliberately. It's something that you have to choose to do. It's something you have to look for. It is not going to be easy. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But the idea is that it is a decision that you are making. And once you walk through that door, you are committed to it. Now, I just want to remind us that each and every one of us in this room and each and every person on this planet has the same invitation laid out for them as these people listening to the sermon that day. And that's important because every single person on the planet is incapable of finding direction on their own. Since Genesis chapter 3 Humanity has been incapable of a relationship with God without an invitation from God. I mean, the gospel is the story of humanity failing, messing up, doing it incorrectly over and over and over and over and over again. Our lives are testimonies to the fact that doing it correctly does not come naturally to us. And without an invitation, without a would you like to, without a enter in, without a follow me, without a are you committed, without a this is what you must do, repent and be baptized, without that sort of call to commitment from someone that is much higher and better and stronger and perfect, there's no way that we could even have hope. But it does require commitment. I was looking at, Susan and I are, are, are planning on going to the Tennessee Baptist Convention this year, and I was looking at the list of speakers. And uh, sometimes in those conventions, you, I know y'all don't know this because y'all don't go, but sometimes in those conventions, they just use the same guys, just in a different order. And this year they've got a couple of new guys. I was excited about that, but I saw one guy's name on the list that I hadn't heard in probably four or five years. But there was something he said four or five years ago that just sticks out in my mind. His name's Junior Hill, and, and I don't know how old Junior is, but Junior is not Junior. Okay? Junior is, at some point, he needs to be, you know, forthcoming and call himself Elder Hill. All right? I mean, he's older. And Junior's been preaching for years, decades. And he said, he said, one of the interesting things about Christianity today is when I was younger, when I was first starting, the criticism I got from pastors and leaders was that I was making it too easy for people to come and follow Jesus. 
He said, the criticism I get today is that I'm making it too hard because I'm actually calling people for a commitment. I read this week about a group of missionaries from about 100 years ago that were called one-way missionaries. They would feel called to go to a foreign land, and what they would do is they would buy a one-way ticket. Now, we joke quite often with people that are going on our Brazil mission trip, names will remain unnamed, that we might have just bought them a one-way ticket. Won't be returning with them. But these missionaries would buy a one-way ticket. And this was before plane travel. They would get on a boat and they would leave. But before they would leave, they would pack everything that they thought they needed, not in a suitcase, not in a bag, but in a wood-carved coffin. And said all they were taking were the things that they needed and the coffin they would be buried in in the foreign land. That's commitment. No turning back. And we sing that, right? I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Though none go with me, I still will follow. No turning back. And the first thing, even in the enter through the straight way, Jesus is saying, you've got a decision to make right now. Are you going to enter and be committed or are you going to be part of the broad way? I was reading a guy that wrote a huge book on the Sermon on the Mount, a guy named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, and, and he, he, he talked about that one of the things that, that you realize when he talks about the straight, when he talks about the narrow, it's the same word just interpreted differently, but the idea is that it is a narrow, narrow passage. Does anybody hear claustrophobic? Nobody's admitting it. All right. None of us like really tight spaces. Right? And the idea is that the picture that is given here is that this is a way that you can go in, but you can't bring anything with you. Now, now, he's not talking about physically, but what he means is that there are things we're going to have to leave behind if we're going to enter through the narrow. In fact, the word here means not so much just a description of narrow, but it really means squeezed, like constricted, like pushing through. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that there are three things that he sees from Scripture that are implied in this passage that we have to leave behind. And the first thing is we just have to leave the world behind. The crowd. That we will not be liked and we will not be like them. The old phrase that we are in the world but not of the world. That we have a different mindset. But it's not just the world, it's the way of the world. I mean... What Jesus has been teaching for several chapters is completely different than what the world would be proclaiming. If somebody hits you on the right cheek, turn the other one. Someone sues you for your coat, then give them the shirt off your back. If a soldier gives you an inordinate task of walking a mile, you go ahead and walk an extra one. That's not our culture, is it? I was driving uh, to work today. Occasionally, I just kind of put it on scan, see what's on the radio. And three of the stations I listened to were on uh, commercial. And so I stopped when I heard a song. And it's a Toby Keith song. Now, I'm not a huge Toby Keith fan. 
But, you know, if you like country music, Toby's okay, I guess. But it's a song on there called How Do You Like Me Now. Anybody know that song? Okay. How Do You Like Me Now? There's a story of a girl he liked in high school, and she wouldn't give him the time of day. And so he's written a song about, well, how do you like me now, now that I've made it, now that I'm on your radio? Your husband, and, and in the middle of it, you start listening, oh, that's kind of cute. And then you realize, this is kind of mean. Because he talks about she marries this guy with money, and he's not, he's not a good husband, and she wakes up lonely every morning, and when she wakes up in the morning on the radio comes his voice, well, how do you like me now? That's not nice. Right? That's stick in your face, ha ha, I told you so. But that's the world. That's the way of the world. Revenge. Grudges. Remembrance. That's not the way of Christ. You know, part of the issues that happen in churches sometimes is that it's a church, but it operates in the way of the world. If I don't get what I deserve or what I think I need, then I'm going to act out or I'm going to hold a grudge or he didn't talk to me or she didn't say something or you wouldn't believe what happened and this is what we need to do. And it's run like a business or a social club or a group of quarreling cliques instead of the place where the people of God are gathered. The narrow way doesn't fit that. It squeezes it out. He also says that it means that we have to leave ourselves behind. Not, not, the new, not the new in Christ, but the old self. And that's possibly the most difficult thing to leave behind. Because I like myself. And you like yourself. I'm not talking about self-image. I'm not talking about um, I'm good enough, you're good enough, we're all good enough, so let's all be happy. I'm talking about we protect ourselves. We look out for our best interest. We are constantly thinking of ways for us to get ahead or us to be liked or us to get through or us to get by or us to be successful. And it says in order to be a follower of Jesus Christ, us has to be put on the back burner and left behind as we squeeze through the narrow gate. He also makes the idea this narrow, this squeezing, tells us that it might be difficult, even painful. Any of you ever... um, and you don't have to admit to this. You can, you can uh, point somebody else out in the room. Ever um, gotten into your closet and like, man, I hadn't worn those pair of pants in a long time. And you start to put them on and you realize that you may not be the same size that you were when you last wore those pants. No, nobody here, but you know people, right? From what I've heard... That can be a difficult, painful experience trying to squeeze in to something that is not fitting properly. The picture here is actually almost of a pressing. Jesus has told them, listen, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. There's going to be persecution. There's going to be trouble. This past week when I was studying for um, the sermon on Gethsemane, uh, somebody somebody I read, or I can't even remember where it was. I couldn't find it today where I, I read it or heard it or, or saw it. But um, somebody said, you know, there are a lot of people out there that will say to you, just become a Christian, everything will be great, everything will be good. They said, if you want to be honest, say, become a Christian, it's going to get worse. 
It's going to get terrible. There are going to be bad moments. Persecution is going to happen. That's what Jesus said, right? Hey, don't, don't worry. They hated me. They're going to hate you. That's not the kind of comfort we like to hear. Enter through the narrow gate, the squeezing gate. And then he gives us reasons why. For the gate is wide and the road is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who go through it. The picture he gives is of walking and there is this huge gate ahead of you. And there is a lot of people you know, good friends, good people. And they're all going through this wide gate. What he says is they don't realize that walking through the wide gate is going to lead directly to their destruction. You know, the older you get, I think the easier it is to see how youthful indiscretions are going to lead to destruction. And today, our teenagers, youthful indiscretions are on display for all to see. Through social media. I saw something the other day on social media that says, I'm just glad that all the crazy stuff I did happened before Facebook was around. Okay? And so you see people, you're like, oh, that is a terrible decision. Oh, and you hope it changes, but you keep watching like, oh, that's not changed. Oh, that's worse. It's not getting better. Jesus says you can almost see them. They're going through that wide gate, the easy one, the one that looks good, the one that looks like it would be great. You might remember Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, right? That's a great movie on temptation. Right? For those of you that hadn't seen it, Willy Wonka owns a chocolate factory. He gives out golden tickets in a chocolate bar. And if people get the golden ticket, they get to go take a tour of the factory. And on a tour of the factory, each of the children has something before them that tempts them either to eat or to become famous or to do something. And if they give in to the temptation, those of you that have seen it, what happens? It destroys them, right? They eat too much candy and they become too big. Or they get the fame swallows them up. There have been two versions of the movie, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I think about one of my favorite movies, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when um, Edward, I mean Edmund, the second child or the second son, goes into Narnia, and while he's there, the queen walks up and has some cookies for him. Would you like the cookies? And he's not supposed to take anything from the queen, but they're cookies. And he takes and he eats, and there's stuff all over his face, and he has committed sin, and it cost him severely. The wide road seems great. But it leads to destruction and there are many on the way. Now, um, he says, verse 14, narrow is the gate. The tiny gate is a perfect metaphor for the Beatitudes. There's a preacher from a hundred years ago said that the first two Beatitudes are the side post of the small gate. Do you remember the first two? I know you all do, but let's turn back to Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, because the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. The first beatitude, the need for consciousness of our spiritual bankruptcy, and the other, the second beatitude, is demand for sorrow over sin. It's a small gate. 
Few people are willing to shed what is necessary to get through it. No one naturally likes to be poor in spirit. No one naturally likes to mourn over their sins. Here's the thing. He talks about the narrow way. It's almost as if, and there's debate about whether the way comes before the gate or the gate comes before the way. It doesn't matter. I think it means that the whole way is narrow. Having entered the narrow gateway, the traveler finds the road remains narrow. Christ is absolutely up front. And yes, we are to be narrow-minded. That's almost the worst thing you can be called in our society. We are a society that likes both and decisions instead of either or. Well, sure, you can live that way, and God will still love you, and there's nothing wrong with it, and you have you you can have your cake and eat it too, and you we don't want you, we don't want to make judgments about you or your lifestyle or who you are. We don't like either or. We like both and. Jesus is an either or Savior. On the narrow road, our thoughts about God and truth are enlarged and confined. Our affections are narrowed, for we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our might, to put no one else above Him or equal with Him. The same goes for our conduct. There are things we cannot do. Everything is not okay. There is freedom in Christ, but we limit it because we've chosen Him. And our boundaries, we find liberation socially, sexually, ethically. The only free man or woman in these areas is the one who walks the straight and the narrow. The German theologian said, in talking about all this, have we not made an amazing discovery? As if we have heard that this is hard and narrow way that leads through dying in dark places, have we not suddenly seen in the narrowness, the breadth, and the dying, the living, and in Him who seems to make living so hard, the greatest liberator. He says that is the narrow way that leads to life. Christianity is a long-term investment. If you're looking for short-term gains, it's not going to be there. The other way, the other alternative is the road to destruction. The implicit idea of the broad road is that it imposes no boundaries on what one thinks. Personal views do not make any difference. C.S. Lewis, I mentioned him Sunday, said in his autobiography about his early experience. I was soon, in the famous words, altering I believe to one does feel. He said at that time I thought, oh, what a relief. From the tyrannous noon of revelation, I passed in the cool evening twilight of higher thought where there was nothing to be obeyed, nothing to be believed except what was either comforting or exciting. And I found that road lacking. In chapter 7, Jesus says, take the narrow way, not the broad one. And then he says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. And good tree cannot produce good bad fruit, and neither can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire, so you'll recognize them by their fruit. 
Chuck Swindoll tells a story about an unforgettable evening with a friend who ate dog food. Now, it's not what you might expect. He was not starving. He was not being initiated into some sort of social organization. It was done on a dare. It happened at an elegant physician's home near Miami. The dog food was served on delicate little crackers with a wedge of imported cheese, bacon chips, and an olive topped with a sliver of pimento. As Chuck Swindoll calls it, hors d'oeuvres a la Alpo. The deed was not perpetrated by an enemy, but by a friend. And as he says, with friends like that, who needs enemies, right? This friend had just graduated from a gourmet cooking course and decided she would put her skills to the test. And did she ever? She doctored up some dog food, placed them on a silver tray. With a sly grin, she watched them disappear. Swindoll's friend couldn't get enough. He kept asking for seconds and thirds and fourths. Now, evidently, that group's a pretty laid-back group because when she finally told them they'd all eaten dog food, they all gave a good laugh. I don't know how that would go over with you. Nobody get any ideas for back-to-church Sunday snacks, all right? It is a perfect illustration, though, of religious deception. Every day, stuff is being taught. It is shiny and new and decorated in a way that people don't know what they're really getting. And there's a lot of Christian dog food out there. Being served up for the masses and people enjoying it. Jesus says, beware. He compares them to the most mild creature you can imagine, right? A what? What what, what does he call them? He calls them sheep. But internally, what are they? ravenous wolves. Now, I have never come face to face with a wolf. I don't really care to or want to. But if I come face to face with a wolf, I do not want to come face to face with a ravenous or ravaging or upset wolf. Right? It says, but most people don't realize that they have this veneer of sounding good and nice, but inside... It's wrong. Someone has said there are actually two ways that someone can be a false teacher according to what Scripture teaches. First of all is that their character, not that they have to be perfect, but their character does not match what they are preaching. And eventually you discover that the person is not in the same way with the message. But we have seen that over and over and over and over again, right? TV preachers, regular preachers, Christians that you know, families that you know, husbands that you know, wives that you know, doing great jobs communicating the gospel, talking about it, and then you find out and you're like, how could they do that? Now here's the thing. Jesus was crystal clear. False preachers have and will come. Sometimes their message will be wrong. Someone has said, and I just wrote this down today, and I think it's good, and we'll close with this, but... Four things to test to see if a guy is preaching, if a lady is preaching the gospel. Four areas that people kind of avoid when they're not. First, false prophets avoid preaching on such things as holiness, righteousness, justice, and the wrath of God. Now, he never says, I don't believe in those things. He just doesn't mention them or doesn't want to talk about them or doesn't want to be divisive. 
with things of the Bible. Secondly, he avoids preaching on the doctrine of the final judgment. Doesn't mention that a day is coming that we have to give an account for what we're doing. Third, false prophets fail to emphasize the fallenness of man. They don't want to talk about sin. They want to talk about the good inside of everybody. The popular television preacher. In fact, currently I think he is the pastor of the largest church in America. So y'all probably know who I'm talking about. I've watched several interviews with him. And every interview I've watched, I desperately want him to take a stand on this issue of sin and humanity. On judgment. And interviewers give him the chance. And he doesn't. I understand. I understand trying to find a place to be listened to by the culture. But if we're being listened to by the culture with the same ideas they have instead of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's not worth being listened to. And when someone is asked point blank, why don't you talk about sin? And he says, well, I just want to focus on the positive. Well, I like to focus on the positive too. But guess what? We sin. This pastor says, I once heard a preacher say, I never preach on sin because people already know they're sinners. What he said is, they need to be built up, be made to see their potential. Now, what's interesting is the guy that I just mentioned was not preaching when this commentary was written. They wrote that. It's not new. It's just repackaged. He said he never uses the word sin in his preaching. Here's the last kind of test. False prophets de-emphasize the substitutionary death and atonement of Jesus Christ. They may talk about Christ's death on the cross, but they do not have the vicarious substitutionary atonement in view. They may sentimentalize about it. They may even sing about it, but they don't believe it. They talk about Jesus and His example to us on the cross. And while I believe that Jesus was saying, this is some way that you need to act, what I don't believe that it was only an example He was setting. I believe that on the cross, He was paying the price for my sin and for you. He was substituting Himself in my place. And that something spiritual and supernatural and real happened on the cross where His blood took the place of my sins people that shy away from that or don't really believe it aren't preaching the gospel have you seen the story about um, one of the Presbyterian denominations keeping a good Baptist hymn out of their hymnal it's a, it's a new hymn it's called I'm going to look up the lyrics here just so uh, I get it right for you um it's called In Christ Alone. We, we've actually sung it here several times. Um, I'm trying to make sure I get the right lyrics because there are like 20 different In Christ Alones. There it is. And it's, it's a modern hymn. It's written by two people named Keith and Kristen Getty who are, uh, have partnered with the Lifeway. They're, they're writing great hymns for the church, modern hymns. Um, it, it fits in a contemporary service, traditional service. And one of the Presbyterian denominations, and I, I, I can't remember which one it is exactly, if it's... Um, which of the two major ones it is, were making a new hymnal. And they had this hymnal, and it was going out, and they wanted this song in there, but they couldn't get over one line. And, and I'm, try, I'm going to find the line so I can read it. Um, here it is. This is the verse that they wanted changed. 
In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, the gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones He came to save. Here's where the controversy comes. Till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. They called Keith and Kristen Getty and said, we'll include that if you'll change the line, the wrath of God was satisfied. Because we don't think people want to sing about that. And we don't necessarily want it in our hymnal. And I was glad to hear that Keith and Kristen Getty said, no. We meant what we wrote. Now here's the thing. If it'd been they didn't if it would have been a minor point of contention, that's one thing. But what happened on the cross is the wrath of God was satisfied in the death of Jesus for my sin. And when people are scared to preach that, you have to wonder about their teaching as a whole. There's a great article online. And I, I started to run it off tonight, but I couldn't write it off because there are lots of links in it. And if you get online, you can search it. Um, it's about a guy. Um, and, and I don't necessarily agree with everything in the article, but it's an interesting discussion about it. It's about by a pastor, and I think he's in Birmingham, but he may not be in Birmingham, that wrote an article about why in a sermon he called out two specific television preachers. He calls out Joel Osteen and he calls out Joyce Meyer and shows why their teaching is something we need to inspect. So if you have Google, you have a computer, you have Google, but put in there, just called out Osteen and you can see it, okay? He's got a video in there from a guy named John Piper. He's got other stuff and he and I, like I said, don't agree on everything theologically, but it's a good discussion of some issues that are there. And what I'm afraid is, you know, we did that game at the very beginning, truth or fiction, and that was really inconsequential stuff. I mean, do we really need to know how many pounds of methane gas a cow releases? No, we don't need to know that. I mean, we don't really need to know the most popular name in the world. But I'm afraid, as believers, we have stopped being discerning about the messages we hear that are labeled Christian. And there's never been a time when it has been more important to be discerning than now. Because no group of Christians ever had as much access to teaching as you do now. You could wake up in the morning, get on a computer or a television or radio, and you could listen to Christian teaching from the moment you woke up till you fell asleep at night and hear somebody different every day of the week for the rest of your life. And we have people that have listened to my sermons in Malaysia because they're online. They put in a... Y'all remember a few weeks ago I did a sermon on... It's not about the nail where the guy had the nail sticking in her. The woman had the nail sticking in the head. That thing has been watched 400 times. That sermon. Now they're searching for the other video and they stumble upon me and they're disappointed. The second most important, the second 
most listened to sermon I've ever had is weird sex. And they're really disappointed when they search for that and they find me talking about a biblical understanding of sex. You could listen to it all day long, but that doesn't mean it's all good and right and true. And what Jesus says is, you need to learn to be discerning about what is good and right and true. Let's pray together.